go now. Look at what's happening. Look at what things could have potential. Look at what things annoy you and look at what things don't annoy you. And then try to figure out how to package your idea with your resources that someone's like, I believe in the momentum of this person based on what they've assembled and then go ask for the expensive favor. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 56. I'm Elise Siebert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are talking to actor, writer, editor, Amy Kirsten. We discuss all the advice for making a web series, using your resources, and networking networking through through the zombie apocalypse. I feel like old school Ritalin, like the prescriptions they had kids on, I was like, bad news bears. Yeah. Like so bad. So yeah, yeah, it's sort of like to to go from that where everyone's like, she'll never get to college and to be like, she's going to be a fucking principal. Principal. It's like one of those like, yes. You're like, I thought she did And then she did it with two kids and a puppy. And a puppy and a husband who's constantly like in Europe for work and stuff like that. Europe. That's even like time zones. How do you talk to each other? I don't know how they do it. I don't know. I don't get it. So. Kevin and I had trouble even with like New York, California time yeah. time difference. It was like the three hour times the difference. You it's just killer. Couldn't, it's too much. Yeah. couldn't connect. Well, I mean, it's hard in general. I think the time difference because we had problems. Yeah. So whenever we when she whenever she first moved out here and I was still in New York, I would have moments where I would we used to talk like five days a week as accountability buddies, yeah. like saying like this is what we have to do Amazing. and blah 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 and yeah well we stopped doing it because it was so hard to find a time that worked because by the time she was up awake and like had gotten through her basic morning routine I was like well into my day and like three hours is the worst it's why people in LA seem so lazy because like everyone's like they're in LA I can't get them you know what I mean (laughs) and while we can be lazy I was like New York's offices are already closed my deadline has been moved to midnight I know yeah exactly (laughs) oh my gosh that's happened to me quite a few times of like Mm -hmm. needing to call somebody I'm like shit it's three o'clock I can't everything's everything's closed everything's close yeah it's it's done but it's kind of nice because you're like well yeah it has to wait it has to go to tomorrow but that's like so coming from new york and then coming to la do you notice that in general people are more chill about their about things than in new york because i find in general i feel that way while i'm here (laughs) well it's funny it's like i sometimes wonder if it's a chicken egg thing because everyone says that about la you know what i mean (laughs) everyone's like you should, you know, I was told that I should move to L.A., you know, in 2009. Everyone's like, why are you in New York still? But I had my own origin story and why I had to be in New York. But, um, yeah, and everyone's like, well, L.A., like, everyone's so chill. Everyone's really apathetic and no one has any hustle. So if you go to L.A. and you have all this hustle, you'll do really well. And then I got here and I was like, everybody has hustle and everybody's like on point. And they don't get hijacked by the city in the same way. And so I actually felt like people in L.A. are more calm because they can get more done without having to fight with the F train and a homeless man (laughs) who just tried to pee on them. So and again, I guess I'm somewhat biased in that most of my network out here is ex-New Yorkers. Like there's an ex-New Yorker who lived next door. She's now a writer, but she was in the original cast of You're in Town. You know what I mean? My roommate's an ex-New Yorker. Most people I collaborate with are... So the person who got me my first job in Hollywood is an ex-New Yorker. So maybe my network is a little bit narrow. But I was warned that I wasn't going to find my people and that people were going to be lazy and super shallow. And like, no, that's just all crap. 
It's I not LA. I agree too. Yeah. I agree with that too. Just being out here for the short time I've been out here. It's yeah. like, it's, it's so nice to hear that though, because I think like it's with anything, right? If you decide you want to do something, it's whatever's going to be the best for you is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Like you can hear people's opinions about it. You can hear what their input is, but what you need to do for you is what you need to do for you. Right. And I think there's actually a moment like as a woman where I finally realized that I was like, I might know best. Like I was like, hey, (laughs) there's a lot of terrible advice available to you in the world. And I didn't realize that. I was like, well, someone gives me advice. I feel obligated to take it because they cared enough about me to give me advice. Realizing that I was like, no, this advice is about the role I play in their story, not my own story. And and their own perspective of their experiences. Like, I mean, when you get like that jaded, bitter advice, you're like, Mm -hmm. hmm. Is this really the best advice or is this because you are still dealing with something 10 years ago that happened to you? Exactly. And my story, my path has to make your life make sense too. So there are a lot of people that are like, hey, I'm going to ride your coattails. And I was like, that's a terrible business plan. Um, Just because I know my own coattails and they haven't proved terribly lucrative yet. Um, uh, But everyone's like, but I believe in you. And I was like, okay. You know what I mean? (laughs) doesn't quite work that way. Um, Thank you. You're like, thank you. But then again, but then also that person's like, no, you're doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, I don't think I should keep doing what I'm doing. I think I need to do a lot of different things, you know, to make it happen. So I think that's that moment of just being like, it's so weird to have so many people in your life have so much unabashed faith in you and to be like, you guys, I'm looking at the numbers and they're not good yet. So I appreciate (laughs) your faith, but it's kind of um, misplaced right now. But in their hearts, they want me to be successful. And I know that. And so it's been, it's always a... Well, they're seeing something that maybe, you know, that people close to you see something that people a little further away don't see because they don't know you yet. You know, there's there's the intelligence behind the work or the the funny behind the work or whatever it is you know it's so true yeah, yeah. And it's hard to remember that because then you, well also then you're like i don't want to let them down either uh but my favorite is people like have you ever thought about just like knocking on doors let's just like getting a like a mailing you know what i mean and i was like no and they're like or you should email brad a woman on an airplane said one time she's like well you're from kansas city you know brad pitt's from missouri you should email him like, yeah, I'm just going to go find his email real quick. I'm going to go find it. And I'm going to be like, yeah, sure. Every every girl from Kansas, every single Everyone. one of us <laughs> needs to email Brad Pitt. And I was like, exactly. Like, uh, anyway, it's just a funny we thing. We grew up three hours away from each other then. Yeah. So you were in St. Louis? Uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. You were in Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska. Yes, we grew up very yes, near each other. I love Midwest to, people. Yes. I'm totally Midwest biased. Me, me too. I noticed in your signature, I liked your signature a lot. Oh, yeah. the, all the Midwest. All the Midwest best. Yeah, yeah I cute. thought that was really nice. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but one of the reasons we clicked originally was because I'm from Mississippi, which is not the Midwest, but it's has. I feel like has a slower and similar mentality in how people operate and and live in the world, and so you have this like natural connection yes i think mississippi is like the sweet south you know what i mean like uh, when i think about i because you know i have family from rural missouri who do not align with my politics yeah that's okay (laughs) um can't win them all (laughs) you can't win them all but i think about you know my relationship to the south and all that kind of stuff like that and when i think about mississippi or i think about nashville it's like it's a different kind of um a different kind of South than other states that will remain nameless. That's all right. We know what they are. We know. They know who they are. <laughs> we know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so tell us about um, 
what was your transition like? Because you started as an actor, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, What was that transition like coming out of acting and deciding like, hey, I'm going to take the bull by the horns and I'm going to start making some of my own work? Well, it was actually um, a way to be acting. And so um, I... My relationship to acting sort of started with on camera and then went to theater like in high school and that kind of thing. My mother sent me to like an acting camp in New York called Beginnings, which like for like the Lego maniac kid came out of. I'm probably dating myself by making these references. (laughs) But it was like at the time when like Lacey Chabert was like, you know, before she was on Party of Five, you know what I mean? And so the New York commercial scene was huge for kids at the time. Like you could make a lot of money. So an agent came to my local dance studio in KC and said, send her to New York to this camp. And I did this thing. And uh, it's a funny origin story. So anyway, um, you do this showcase at Circle in the Square for like all these industry people. Um, and I, for some reason, I was like seven and I was like, I need to write my own monologue. I don't know why. It's like, these aren't <laughs> good enough. I was just telling you. These aren't good enough. I'm going to write my own. And I'm like, this was not, I don't recall being this child, but I guess I was. Um, so I wrote my monologue and it was basically like a stand up set being like, my life is the worst. It's like, <laughs> do you have a video of this? I wish. I oh wish. my God. I do have a cool story. So I was a really shy kid. Um, and so my mother had never seen this side of me. So she sends me to New York on a plane. This is like a Kansas, like Missouri That's mom. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. A Midwest my, mom being like, yeah. I'm going to send my, se- you were seven? I was seven. Props to Linda Kirsten. Oh she had God. never been to New York City. Like my first time on a plane oh by myself. My and I think it sowed the seeds for some wanderlust that's just never going to go away. So, um, so yeah, and so the camp was in Newark, New Jersey, and they bust us into the city, and we did these monologues. And then I did my own monologue, and I guess my mother, like, turned to the guy next to her, this complete stranger, and she grabbed him, and she's like, that's my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> we always, like, love about that. And then the they, they're like, you can't leave. A lot of guys are interested in her. She's got a bunch of meetings and auditions. And so they put us up in this amazing hotel called the Walcott at, like, I think it's like at 34th and 5th. It's right by the Empire State Building. And so these guys got us this great hotel room and ordered us a giant pizza. And my mother and I had our first night in New York City together. And that's why I said I was like, and it was just the most magical evening, you know, like the the Empire State Building lighting up our hotel room. These two women that are just like, how did we get here? And so it cemented our relationship. And my mother, I owe a lot to. And then also, I just think it cemented why I wanted to make New York work. Because that was such an origin story for me. Because I booked my first national commercial audition like a week later. Um, and so that sort of got me into SAG and all that kind of stuff. So I started on camera and like being at Silver Cup Studios with my first relationship to being an actor. But then, you know, she realized she's like, we don't want to split up the family. We don't want to raise you in New York. Yeah. Um, and so and someone's like, when she hits 10, it's going to slow down anyway. So she was like, well, we'll take her back to KC and let her do her thing there. And then if she wants to go back to New York, she can. And of course, I was like, hell bent. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Even though New York is really for theater, film, not so much. I should have moved to L.A. But it was, you know, when you're young, you're just... I don't even know. Also, There's something magical and attractive about New York, yes, too. Yes, it is. It's in you all know, the movies. Yeah. It's just, uh, in terms of somebody chasing their dreams, New York is a better analogy. Yeah. It's, it's more, as a Kansas girl, it's more of an Oz than Los Angeles. Yes. And so yes. I think I took a long time to shake that narrative. So, and long answer to your question was, the transition into it is that I couldn't get, I just wasn't getting traction the way I wanted to. I think it was just very hard for me to get people to see me. And the way that it started happening was when the web series game sort of started up in like 2007, 2008, while I couldn't get cast an off-Broadway show to save my life, I had some good timing. And so I got into some early web series and I was like, 
I think I can do this. And I bet if I do this, people will see me in the same way. And I don't really remember my thoughts at the time, but there was something to that. So that's when I had, um, I was on a charming web series um, called um, Vixens of Virtue, Vixens of Vice. I was a vixen of vice. <laughs> Naturally. Did you have a vice that was associated with you or just um, all vice? I was, my character's name was, I feel like I can talk about this now. And another woman replaced me who was way better after I left the series. <laughs> um, but my character's name was Bitter Evil. And I had a Buck Rogers like gun, like a, a ray gun. And then I had like a robot that died in the middle of an episode one time. And it was like a whole thing. Mm. Um, uh, and so, but on the set of that, there was a, a DP and like, we were like both, it was not our genre, if you will. Um, but we bonded. And so I emailed him and said, Hey, I think I'm gonna make a web series about like the true terrible stories that happened to me in New York. Like, as I'm just notorious for like, how did you get yourself in this situation? And uh, he was like, I was like, what kind of camera should I buy? And he emailed me back. He's like, please don't buy a camera. You're, it's going to look terrible. I will shoot it for, I'll shoot your first season for free. And so, and this was before the DSLR craze, before the digital film craze. So we shot on like mini tapes. Wow. And, um, and then he gave them to me and I figured out a way to run them through a camera to then import them into iMovie. And I, I got the footage and I was like, oh, I get it. The close up is so that you can stop being in the wide when the wide stops being good. <laughs> oh. Oh, I get it. I can, that actor, I can, meaning that bad actor, meaning me at the time, I was like, I can take out the air there and it's funnier. Mm. Oh my God, if you add a sound effect, boy, that's way better. And so literally it was just me, like as I was on extra on a bunch of movies, getting paid, you know, like 110 a day, learning to edit an iMovie with this footage he gave me of our first season of Hot Mess. If you go back and watch it, it's very dated, but I mean, for me, it's like very special and very charming. Um, and so I, and, and that's where I realized I was a good editor. So I was like, okay, my acting and my ability to write for myself and my editing go in line. And it may be the only way I'm going to have a career. Um, and so that's kind of was the transition. And they're all storytelling. You're you're telling stories through pictures. You are. You're just using, you know, watercolors and then oils and then you know that's how I like to think. Of it. I love it. And they're different <laughs> stages. Like you have to do the pencil on the paper first, and then yes. you do some watercolors, yes. and then you add some oils, and they, they're related to each other, but mm -hmm. they're definitely different mm -hmm. um, sides. Yeah. So that's that story. I feel like my stories are very long. They're I'm not, sorry. No, okay. no, no. They're very entertaining. Very, no, very it's interesting. So Elise was telling me that at the collaborative that you came and you were talking to everyone about, um, it's the collaborative that she attends mm -hmm. in LA. Sorry, just to be clear to everyone. So I'm not just like <laughs> saying words. Um, but that you came and you talked about web series. Like what is some of the biggest things you, you think people should know approaching Making starting a web, a web series. Yeah. Right. I think you have to start with your goal, right? And I think that's really important. And so um, I ended up teaching a course about this at the Digital Film Academy for a while. And then I transferred it to a friend when I moved out here. Um, so the thing about the stuff that I've made, I've probably produced for myself and then for other people. I think it's coming up on like nine web series now. Um, and they have served different purposes and none of them have been sold. You know, none of them have made their money back technically, um, but they have served these people in various different ways. So you have to decide as an actor, is this web series about selling your show? Are you trying to make a show that you can sell? And if that's the case, are you really just making a pilot? Are you making a pilot in a couple pieces that then a studio is going to take and attach a showrunner and run with it. And you think about, you know, Rachel Bloom, right? So Rachel Bloom wasn't trying to sell a show. 
she was selling the concept of who she was. So, you know, her amazing videos like F me, Ray Bradbury. I don't know if mm-hmm. I can curse. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you um, say like, can. Okay, the so she want. made an amazing music video <laughs> called, if you haven't seen it, it's called Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury. And I just fell madly in love with her by this video. Anyway, so someone saw it. And that was a proof of concept for Rachel. Mm-hmm. And if you go watch uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, that video is clearly the seed of the idea. So um, for her character in the show, which is based on who she is and then her musical theater sensibilities and how she expresses herself. So if it's a proof of concept for who you are, then make sure it's about that. And if you're doing that, you can often make it much cheaper because you're probably not going to make your money back. And it's just a great link that you get to send to people. So start with that. Say, okay, so what is my thing, right? You don't have to do a blown-out music video like Rachel. She had friends that could help her make that. That's how she did it. (laughs) Um, And so for me, it was the, you know, I had these crazy, awesome, true stories. And I was like, okay, well, I can adapt these and descriptive things and write a character for myself. It's sort of like a fish out of water who just gets themselves in, like, terrible situations. Um, And then always, like, you know, pops back up whenever she falls down. I feel like that was my brand. So I made a show about that and we would just wait for a location. I was like, we have an elevator. And we're like, we have that elevator story. Okay, let's do that in the elevator in the morning when we have the elevator, right? So we were never pushing the boundaries of the vision of the show. We were letting the show adapt to the resources that we had. Therefore, we made 30 episodes, I mean, with a lot of sweat equity, but in terms of money spent, we made 30 episodes for under $11,000. That's incredible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and that's including post-production costs because I was editing Well, them. you were editing. Yeah. So <laughs> if you can learn to edit, you can save yourself thousands of dollars. <laughs> um, so, so that's one thing. But if you're trying to sell the show, so I think if it's a proof of concept for you, I would say try to make as many as you can to figure out what is that thing. You know what I mean? Because you never know what's going to strike. I've made things that I thought would be so funny and no one cares about. And the dumbest thing I threw away, people are like, that's hilarious. <laughs> like, like, for example, Hot Mess, yeah, a lot of people liked it. And, you know, we got a lot of attention. We got like a packaging agent out of it. And all these people gave us advice. All these older people gave us advice. And they were giving us advice on old media. And at the time, we didn't know. Anyway. But what I actually made that got me on the casting director's radar for comedy was a web series called Coattails. And Coattails, I was uh, coat checking at a uh, like a downtown bar with traders in Manhattan. And um, not... Uh, not my type of scene, let's just say. So um, the men would either completely ignore me or treat me as like low-hanging fruit, and I'd be like, I have to hide. So um, my <laughs> coat room was like in the, na- the basement of the building, and it was like a boiler room kind of, I guess. Anyway, and so I started setting up my camera in there and trying on people's coats and doing impressions of them and telling stories about them as a way to like hide in the closet and entertain myself as I was a coat checking for like seven hours. Because also I would steal people's coats. Like I wasn't allowed to like... I was like, hey, coat check is mandatory. And then I'd get the coat and I'd back away to head downstairs. And I was like, it's $3. I'll see you on your way out. And then I would just hide. And they'd have to come find me. So much of Coattails, too, is me like trying to act and putting on people's jackets and doing bits. And then people like screaming like, where's the coat, girl? And like knocking on the door. And so you see me like strip off the jacket and try to go get them. So again, it was me killing time and me just experimenting. But it ended up being one of the strongest things that industry responded to. And it is, you guys, it is beyond low budget. It is like negative budget. So I was like, well, that's information, right? That I spend all this time and money to learn to tell scripted comedy. And I'm glad I learned how to do that. But what really got people on board with me was coattails. And it's still my parents' favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's what I say. Are you trying to sell the show or are you trying to sell you? And I think if your resources are limited and you're an actor, I would try to sell you first. 
and then learn to write and figure out a show and find partners and then try to sell a show, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is this new stage that I'm currently at. Um, But I do feel like I have a great shortcut now with all the things I've made that if someone's like, who are you as an actor? And I'm like, boom, here you go. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, And so I'm grateful for that. That's great. No, that is awesome. So um, what, so you've done lots of web series, clearly. Yes. Um, You've been transitioning into, or have for a while, been Mm -hmm. doing other mediums as well. Do Mm -hmm. you, um, what is your advice in switching from one to the other? Is there anything that you think people need to know as far as how to navigate that? Right. So if you've been making web series and then you want to make like a pilot. Um, So the advice that I've gotten recently, um, because we just made a, TV pilot that's sort of like a truncated version of a TV pilot um, because I didn't want to make a web series and we had this idea and a director wanted to work with us and all this cool stuff happened. Anyway, um, so I wrote the script to feel like a TV pilot. It was about 22 pages. And because it was a pilot, people, sorry, let me back up here. Start the story over again. Okay, start again, (laughs) yes. Um, So the thing about web series is they are great, but everyone's making them, and we have web series fatigue. It is happening. And I think I even mentioned it in that session we did that I was like, maybe start calling it a digital series because everybody's making them, and just like anything else, just like a lot of you know downtown theater, there's so much bad out there that it's very hard to get through to people and them not to associate you what you're making with the stuff they've seen that they didn't like. Mm -hmm. And so um, to avoid that barrier of entry, I knew the next thing I wanted to make, I wanted to be able to call it a pilot, even if it wasn't a full pilot. So I wrote a 22-page pilot that didn't have backstory. It just had what was fun about the TV show without taking those five, 10 minutes to be like, and here's so-and-so, and here's where she's headed, and yada, yada. Which is difficult. I mean, that's the most difficult thing about a pilot, right? Oh, is totally. like getting people to care about these characters, not knowing them, but also not just having an expository yes. 22 pages of like, okay, now we know who they are, but nothing happened. That's you why know? so many pilots are terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I've, I sort of think a pilot should be a proof of concept for the characters. And then on the second and third episode, you can have the fun flashbacks. Like like the West Wing did, um, the, and West Wing. the West Wing. That's right, because I'm, I'm comparing myself to Aaron Sorkin right now. What, why not? <laughs> sure. um, I'm sure he's going to listen to this. Um, Absolutely, that's he's not a, about your podcast. Regular, that's about um, me. He's a regular. That's listener. not about your podcast. That's about me. <laughs> Whatever. Um, anyway, so but because it felt like a pilot upon reading it, people jumped on board for free in the way they had done it with early hot mess. And so people were like, this script is good. I want to make this happen in a way that people saw the first episode of Hot Mess and started volunteering their time and efforts for free back then. And so I was like, well, that's information. And so looking at what people are doing that's wearing people out, that's annoying you when your friends are sending you the Kickstarter emails, or when your friends are begging you to watch their show and like it and comment, and like, why are you annoyed by the show? What would you rather see them do? Maybe go do that. And you'd be amazed how many people came on board. Like... I, we, so, I couldn't believe that people were like, I like the writing. And I was like, okay. And you're just going to show up and do it? Like, um, and so, and then also what I would say with that too is um, get as many resources in place that you can to to legitimize the project. So like, um, I had been working at Happy Madison, Adam Sandler's company in the post-production office. And they had the front of the office looks much, very much like a women's health clinic. And so the opening scene of the pilot is in a women's health clinic. So I, of course, emailed, you know, one of the nice ladies I worked with over there and said, um... 
is anyone using it over the weekend? And, you know, would Adam come in and be like, what are you doing? And she's like, no, it's fine. Of course you guys can. I, I love you. I trust you. You've worked for us for a couple of years. And so when I could then go back to like our DP who was thinking about jumping on board, even though we had no budget for her or her crew, I was like, oh, we have Happy Madison for this scene. And she was like, oh, that's impressive. Little does she know, I was a PA. I got people coffee. They have no idea who I am or what I can do. <laughs> this is not that they're vouching for my abilities. It's that they're like, we know you won't burn the place down. But then when I take that information and I go to my DP, she's like, cool, I want to shoot there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. a way of taking what you, your resources that you have and just slightly rebranding them for the sake of legitimizing who you are. But then if you really look at it, you earned those contacts and you earned their trust. Therefore, you ha- that's a good way to earn this woman's trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also filmed in a water plant who is our neighbor and we buy our water from there and she loves us. <laughs> so that's why we wrote it. I had never heard of a water plant, by the way. Yeah. That's a very L.A. thing. It's a water plant. Um, I highly recommend the water plant in Studio City. It's run by an incredible woman who really believes in the healing power of water. And if you just go get Leslie even started on the topic, you will be a changed person. Well, clearly she has an awesome name. She yeah. has an awesome name. She does have an awesome name. So, so sorry, I feel like that's a circuitous answer. But so the transition out of web series is that know that web series are tired. Um, and so try to see what you can do to um, get people to believe in the potential of the project to grow. And um, and when we say grow, we say, you know, Amazon could pick this up now, which when we were making Hot Mess, there was no Amazon. Netflix wasn't buying content. You know, everyone's like, YouTube is where it's going to be at. <laughs> so now look at what's happening. Look at what things could have potential. Look at what things annoy you and look at what things don't annoy you. And then try to figure out how to package your idea with your resources that someone's like, I believe in the momentum of this person based on what they've assembled and then go ask for the expensive favor. I love that advice of like, also pay attention to the stuff that annoys you mm-hmm. because so easy it's like ugh, I don't want it to be that you know like you're working on something you're like I know I don't want it to be this mm-hmm. and that's almost aggravating when you're trying to still figure out what it's supposed to be but that is very useful information and to acknowledge that and it's true because you're probably not alone yeah you're probably not alone and again if you can just get around people's pet peeves they're very excited about you yeah especially yeah. in the entertainment industry I've learned so what are some things you've learned about producing scene now that maybe kind of shine a light like when you go on set just as an actor Mm, well it's interesting so uh, in terms of indie producing um, crew is cheaper in LA than New York which no one tells you fun fact fun fact Um, and uh, so there's there's that I mean are you asking more specifically to like the stuff I make or like the big budget features that I work on as like a minion any lessons you've learned or anything that you wish you would have known about producing or Hmm. Well, let me think about that. Or even like what producing has done for your acting. I mean, it's the only thing. <laughs> you guys, I, got a, I have an MFA in performance from one of the best schools in the country. It has done nothing for my career. <laughs> um, I have two. That's, de- that's basically what I was fishing for. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. We want the truth. Um, okay, so um, here's what I will say. So working on the features that I have worked on, um, especially working for Happy Madison, which is such an amazing family of people, you know, like it's not let though my career is going to in any way, you know, be a part of the Happy Madison sphere at all. But I do I do really care about that family of people because you see the way that Adam has built an empire on his island with his people. And he has fed families. I mean, literally, people have raised their children on Adam's movies. And Adam knows this. Well, even I mean, 
he hires even just actors just above the line. He hires so many of the same people. So I'm sure behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's not that Adam doesn't want to expand. I mean, I I don't want to speak for Adam. I don't know him well. We know each other casually. But in my observation, it's that he's thinking about who he can trust to keep this thing going. You know what I mean? And so, and who he feels comfortable around because it is a tremendous amount of pressure. So when you think about why people only hire people they know and you're like nepotism, you're like, no, it's about trust. And so you can't expect someone to just believe in you because you believe in yourself. And this comes to where if I ever do a TED Talk, this is my speech about, did I talk about the zombie apocalypse theory? I think so. Oh, so, I'm excited. So networking, this is what I've observed. Networking, all competitive industries, including ours, um, I compare to the zombie apocalypse, right? So a bunch of people are, you know, hungry and grabbing for very limited resources, right? So in a zombie apocalypse, most people are zombies. So a non-zombie is like a rare thing. And actually, zombies want to eat the non-zombie, duh. But like fellow non-zombies have to find each other, right? But it's very difficult because everyone's a zombie. <laughs> so what do you do, right? So you like see a non-zombie across the way and you're like, I really think that person's not a zombie. I really want to go talk to them. But like they just, they should absolutely assume you were a zombie. We're in an apocalypse, okay? So how do you get that person to believe that you're not a zombie? You don't lunge at them and say hi because they're just going to assume you're trying to eat your face. Um, so I am loving this, analogy. right? So, um, so um, you offer them a loaf of bread, right? Because zombies don't like bread; they like humans. So you offer them a loaf of bread and you say, "Hey, no pressure, just loaf of bread." You take care, and they're like, "Hey, cool. What's your story?" And you're like, "Oh, I do this and this and this. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, me too. Okay, cool. I'll see you later." You know what I mean? You don't lunge at them. <laughs> okay. And so what I'm saying is like you cannot expect someone to believe in you based on your real. Someone should believe in you because you've walked their dog and because um, they had a bad day and you helped them get through it or you offered them a favor. Um, and you may not know what you need from them yet. Or if you do need something from them, do not ask for it right away. And so make sure that whatever you're doing in building relationships is not just meeting people and following them on Twitter. You know, it's saying, what do you need? And so I had a meeting with some ladies who were on your podcast, um, and I didn't know what I needed from them yet, but they were nice enough to just meet me through our connections. And then I was like, what do I do with this meeting now? And then I was like, what do you guys need? And they're like, oh, we're making this, so we need this and this. And I was like, I can help. And I did. I helped them. And that felt amazing. And I feel so much better about that relationship now that I was able to fulfill a need for them. Yeah. That when I do need them or when I do feel like I'm ready, I can go to them without feeling, you know, the guilt of being like, please like me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I just feel like setting yourself up with that um, with that thought in mind um, goes so well. And then you think about when you get to the upper echelons and are talking these, these huge budget movies, it's about trust because there's so much at stake. And so if these people have been there for you and not let you down in the past, of course you're going to go to them again. Mm -hmm. And so how can you earn their trust in whatever way you can? But you cannot expect them to love you the way they love a person who was in their last movie or got them an Oscar. Um, That's just not how it works. And so nepotism is not shitty. It is a natural course of relationships. Mm -hmm. And and until you embrace that, you're never going to get anywhere and scare a lot of people. Well, and it exists in like you said all industries like so many Mm -hmm. actors are like oh I didn't make it when I was 16 I was like well that person's dad was a producer and that person's mom Mm -hmm. was an actress like I think you're okay you know yeah (laughs) I think you can chill out and the same thing happens in politics it happens in I mean even being from the midwest like small towns like certain families who have been you know 
in that town for many, many lineages and, you know, ran banks and whatever, they're still around and they're still a part of the, the community in a big way. I know. You yeah. think about the, the tribal nature of humans and it's like, of course that applies in Hollywood. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> it, of course it does. So just find your way into tribes that you believe in and then serve the tribe and the tribe will serve you. Now, I will say, I have had times in my life where I've overdone that. Like I have overtaken care of somebody who was not going to pay it back or they haven't yet. So it doesn't, I'm not saying this is a perfect theory. Like there are a lot of people that owe me favors that are never going to give them in. But I also, uh, then I walk away from those relationships. And, and you feel fine with doing that. And I feel fine. I have no regrets. Approaching, and there's something, oh, sorry. There's something to learn from that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. That, yeah. But in general, like approaching life from a place of coming from a place of service is never going to be bad. Like even if someone like you just have to be honest with yourself and aware when someone is taking advantage of Mm -hmm. that and you have to say, okay, well, then I'm no longer going to put myself out there. But that's really the only thing that can happen. And on that note, make sure you're not taking advantage of other people. So I think about the people that have taken advantage of me. But then I look back and I was like, wow, that DP on Hot Mess, like – there were some long days for him, and it was hard work, and we packed in. We started paying him the second and third season, but still, it was below his rate. But because we were paying him, we packed in so much in one day. you know. And then I realized I was asking for so many favors of people that really I was asking for their time, which was their money. And they gave it to me, but I'm really happy that at some point my awareness developed enough that I said – you can't ask for them from free anymore. And also then what can you give back to them at least? And so now if any of those people need me, I'm incredibly loyal to them. Uh, but I feel like I did take too much in the beginning because I was just naive. So also make sure that even though you have the best of intentions and it's your passion project, that you're not asking too much of people. Don't just give them pizza for lunch. Yeah. Find a taco truck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that stuff matters, especially if you want repeat customers. So I think you have to take care of them on set if people are giving you their time for free and also make the product good so they can be proud of it. And like, you know, all that kind of stuff adds up to get those favors again. Uh, so I think, it, yeah, it definitely goes both ways. Definitely. So for <clears throat> for editing, because you're self-taught from self-taught what we were. Yeah. yeah. So how important do you think it is when approaching editing either finding someone to edit for you or whether you're going to edit yourself, the genre? Oh, that's super interesting. Um, I think certain editors are good at certain genres and not at others. Um, And my genre is definitely comedy or like cause-based content um, and like uh, pace, like my pace is fast. I used to be a dancer. And so my relationship, um, you know, I love that about you too. Yeah, I was going to say. I was going to say, I was like, I, I checked out all your stuff. Yeah. I love it. Um, I used to be a dancer. And so the r- rhythmic connection of editing and cuts to music is extremely important for me. Like I will spend hours to get the right cut on a downbeat because I'm a crazy person. <laughs> no, you're not. I, Right. Exactly. Um, There are certain editors who are not like that. They are um, a lot of them are men and a lot of them were completely alone. And um, I will say for like pacing and timing and things, they might be a better bet, especially if we're talking like a horror movie or like a drama. An editor is just like an actor. I think they are that specific if you ask me. Um, And so you really want to find somebody that is the same kind, the same genre of storyteller as you. It's just this is their way of doing it as opposed to your way of doing it. So that's what I would say about an editor. So if you haven't seen them do something that looks like what you want to do, you have to tell them that and say, I really need something you've cut that looks like this TV show. And I could say, well, 
I did this crazy, like, talking head thing about an evangelical, um, like, a woman who's, like, um, an evangelical feminist. And so it's sort of like, you know, a weird, like, Christopher Guest-style thing. And they're like, that's what I need to see. And I was like, great, here you go. But I would never let, you know, they wouldn't hire me unless they saw that, even if they saw Hot Mess and laughed at it or in case of emergency. It's not the thing they're cutting. Um, And so I guess that's my thing is really find the – you have to cast your editor well. That's what I'm mm-hmm. trying to say. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. That's really great. Especially advice. if you don't know what your vision's going to be, because an editor can really help you. And also if you screw yourself. If production goes totally down the drain, there are certain editors that are very good fixers. And they won't make you feel bad about yourself while they're trying to fix it. Because certain editors are like, well, you didn't get the coverage. And you're like, I'm well aware. That's not a problem <laughs> we can fix right now. Great. Tell me something I don't know. Exactly. The problem Show we can fix magic. is that is exactly it's like we can like Frankenstein this piece and you know, we have B roll of her when the camera was rolling and she wasn't paying attention, the camera was rolling, and could we use that and throw a voiceover in there? And they can rewrite your story to save it. And so those triage editors are also incredibly valuable too. So it's not just a dude who knows how to use or a lady who knows how to use their computer well. It is an artist and it is a voice and it is a writer. And that's, you got to make sure you're you're hiring the right person. Yeah, I've just noticed that so much lately, how editing really is like the final piece of story, of the storytelling. Oh, yeah. It's the final rewrite. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And no so question. many people don't save resources for that. No. Oh, my gosh. People, <laughs> you guys, put money. I don't care how much you're raising on Kickstarter. Put money aside for post. Yeah. It's so because also no one works for free in post because that's like the plumber. Like you got to pay the plumber. Mm. No one's gonna. Maybe a friend will color correct it for free, but I know very few people who will sound mix and audio polish and do all that stuff for free. It's much like the boom guy. So sound gets all the money it needs first, then you parse out the rest. And I feel like a lot of DPs are gonna hear this and roll their eyes at me. And I was like, they don't have a reel; they get to put it on. They're the plumber. Take good care of them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, people don't save money for post and also they freak out in post because it doesn't look like how they thought it would in their head because they were on camera the whole time. And so also if you're going to sit with an editor know that you're going to probably drive them crazy and ruin it, like let the editor do an editor's cut so you can just see with an outside eye what it's going to be. You can hate the editor's cut. Most people do, but it's a really good way to refamiliarize yourself with what, like where your project is now, not how it was in your head, not how exciting it felt on the day how it's going to look to the rest of the world. So I would let your editor do an editor's cut and then come in, freak out, cry, have your panic attack, (laughs) and then tell them what's wrong and then sit with them to figure it out. But, you know, everyone's like, I really want to sit with you while you cut. And I was like, no, you don't. No, um, my husband, Brandon, being a sound engineer, says the same thing Mm -hmm. about when you're doing any sort of cutting for sound, um, having director come and sit with you. Like, yeah, it just it's hard because you have to wait because they're like, well, that's not really how I, I I don't envision it sounding all right I didn't think it would sound that way and yeah. like yeah well I still have to compress this I still have to add this layer in I still have this is just the basis of it yeah yeah there's a reason sometimes when someone's cutting your hair that you don't get to watch them <laughs> ironically yeah. a very yeah. appropriate analogy because cutting is... do you guys get it with scissors mm-hmm. I like those things <laughs> um, it's so funny and I've walked in on so many sessions of like on big budget movies and post sessions where the directors are there and they're asleep 
they are out cold. The directors are sleeping. Yes, they're in an editing session. <laughs> and the editors who I'm friends with, too, said this, too, and I won't name any names. I love everybody I've ever worked for on bigger budget movies, incredible people. But it's very boring, and obviously they're going to fall it's asleep. It's so tedious, and it's so detailed. It's so tedious and so yeah. detailed. So tell your editor what you want, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, it's... And just make sure you're not getting in your own way. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say about the web series thing, I don't know if you can loop this back in back there, but I think also when you're making a web series and you've never made anything, when you start to make it and it starts to look like TV, like you're going to start hearing the trumpets and the music swelling. You're like, I have arrived. I work in entertainment. <laughs> I can make television. And you get so excited about how good and how much like TV it feels. And if I can tell you one thing that is certain – Within a year and a half, you're going to watch it and cringe on how bad it is. And so it's very important that you do not empty your life savings into making more of it at that first go. And I think a lot of people, and I think even with Hot Mess we did this, is that we were just so committed and so people were so excited about it and we were excited about it. And we just gave it a little more than it was asking for at the time because we believed in it. And it doesn't quite work like that. And it's a really good way to get discouraged and also blow your life savings. Um, so uh, I think it's good to make a season of something and then come back two years later and make it better. Mm -hmm. um, and I also just think just because it feels like TV to you right now does not mean it's actually going to feel like TV to everybody else. And it's probably going to be outdated very soon anyway. And you're going to hate it. So that, I wanted to put that out there because yeah. I feel like that's advice I wish I'd heard. I mean, there's so many people that can't watch stuff after a while they're mm -hmm. like i can't watch it anymore yeah. and it was like the love of your life at one point and i mean yeah imagine you know? like it was your baby and yeah. then you just now you want to like leave it in a ditch and yeah. walk away and pretend it never happened i mean you have to think like that and then and so many people don't know and like i get the excitement because it's the first time that you've been you've been in control over um your self-actualization as an actor and that is an intoxicating drug and i oh totally gosh, get it yes. be very careful Give it the right amount of energy, not what you're feeling at the time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, what are you working on now? Great. So um, we made In Case of Emergency, which is like a web pilot, but it's basically like a, you know, a truncated pilot um, that, you know, was a 22-page script, and we ended up getting it down to like 11 minutes. We took a lot out. Um, and so I'm hopefully going to be pitching that show. And the thing I'm most excited about is I have written my first feature. And so this is an interesting arc in that I took hot mess from my true stories. That's how I became a writer. I was like, well, someone has to write this down so we can act it out. So I'm just going to write it down. Oh, that's how scripting works. Again, <laughs> I was like, well, someone has to write it down. Someone has to. And someone has to direct it. So I'll just direct it. Do I call action? I'm calling action. Okay, just do that thing I talked to you about. Oh, that's directing. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So it was never like, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a director. Yeah. It's just like, well, someone has to has do it. Has to do it. Yeah. Um, so in the terms of taking true anecdotes and true stories and scripting them into entertaining dialogue became sort of how I became a writer. So um, I was in China doing plays in 2015 and 2016, English language plays. I am not fluent in Mandarin, um, which was a really cool experience. And I got to live in Shanghai, which is so much fun. Uh, but while I was there, um, I was like having a really extraordinary personal life experience too. And I thought this might be my first feature. You know, I think I can write about this story of like a down on our luck New Yorker because at the time New York was not my best friend. And we, we were not have those moments. We were not doing well. This our relationship was on very thin ice, and we ended up parting ways. Um, so, but I was like, what if Shanghai was my rebound city? And there's a bunch of reasons for that. The expat community is so inviting, where New York is so cold and whatever. And the expats are just speaking every language and every accent, and the men are gorgeous, and they're all like <laughs> super excited to see you. <laughs> and I was like, there's a movie here. And then while I was there, I discovered a, a writer. 
who sort of did the same thing in 1935. And I was like, aha, here's my movie. Um, and that writer's life has actually since been optioned to do a television series about her life and be very excited about it, you guys. She's your favorite woman feminist in history who you don't know about yet. But my There's movie is those. like, yeah. So <laughs> the character in my movie, the flashback character, is not her. It's, it was just inspired by her as a public figure. Um, and so it's sort of like a Lost in Translation meets Julia and Julia. Um, but the cast right now is, I think, 40% um, Chinese. And I'm very excited about what's happening with Crazy Rich Asians. Um, and so I'm really hoping that it's sort of, I imagine it being an under million dollar indie movie, but it's getting a lot of people interested and in moving it forward. So ideally, this time next year, I will have shot this movie. That's awesome. Uh, it's called A Woman Abroad. And I'm, yeah. And That's super exciting. Anybody wants to invest and experiment in the Chinese VOD market, I am your girl. There you go. That's a whole nother market too, mm -hmm. um, approaching that digitally. Because we've talked to people, I can't remember which guests we've talked to in the past about the um, Asian market in general and how there are certain things that you have to be careful of. Mm -hmm. um, making sure that it aligns with sensor wise yes yes, yes. and yeah. so uh the producer that i worked with um one of the producers that i worked with and i did um the plays in shanghai um she works in the film industry as well and she's fluent in mandarin um she's from the uk and so she's a gold mine for me because she sends me all the specs and reads the script um and so that's amazing and then my directing partner my hope is to possibly direct it myself with him as my um partner because he's insanely talented. Um, or another director. We're not sure what we're doing yet. But the point is, is that he also shot a bunch of commercials there too. And so I, the cool thing is that I have, again, I took my resources and said, what do I have that nobody else has? And I was like, I have Shanghai. Like uh, yeah. I have, I have a 10-year yeah. visa to go yeah. back there and visit and try to get investors and locations. Mm -hmm. And I've got filmmakers there that I met while I was living there. And I've got these really cool stories. And I was like, right. So that's what makes me unique that's my, like, thing that I've got. Like, you think about the Duplass brothers, and they had those chairs, right? They had those two chairs, and then they made the puffy chair. They started not with their ideas, not with their delusions of grandeur, furniture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What furniture do you have available to you? So because I have Shanghai available to me, and because I do have these inns, you know, mo producing movies in China is very difficult because of everything that's going on. But I think if you can stay small and contained and indie, and then you can use these contacts you have to try to get a Chinese partner— so the movie's partly Chinese-owned. And again, I don't exactly know what I'm talking about, but I kind of do. We'll have to check back in with you. Check back in. Um, you can possibly – I'm interested in invest, investigating on how to get around the Chinese quota in that sense of being like they don't like a lot of imported stuff. If the movie's partially made by Chinese companies owned by Chinese people, then you would get around the quota to my understanding about – because they only import like 17 movies a year. So it wouldn't be an imported movie. It'd be partially owned. And again, I have no idea what I'm doing, but this is all based around the fact that I was like, these are the resources that I have. How can I put these together to make something greater than the sum of its parts? And that's where the idea from this movie came from. That is, it that's sounds awesome. like a really fun story, too. It does. It's cool. I love the script. We're doing another pass at it. I'm finally working with a script consultant, which I was yeah hesitant about, but I'm really excited to get someone to come in with me and do another pass at it. But we just had a table read in New York and people were laughing. Oh, so I was wonderful. like, well, at least they're, like, people were laughing. Congrats. You know, that yes. was just, that felt That's so, the best feeling. Yeah, lots of laughs. So like that felt really good. And um, 
we'll see. I mean, it feels impossible, but then that's what you do, right? You make yeah. some web series, then you make a pilot, and you're like, I think I can make a movie now. <laughs> so I'll let you guys know if it I happens. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a movie, a Chinese movie. Whatever. You know what? You guys, it's you a 14-hour flight from L.A. The street noodles are amazing. It's totally <laughs> worth the commute. Um, you won't regret it. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, where can people find you and online and all your stuff? Well, and- so it's weird. I'm... Um, I, I've been trying to separate my acting persona from my producing editing persona. So if you want to hire me as an editor or talk to me about consulting on one of your web series or your projects, if you're sort of like, I have no idea where to start, like that's kind of what I do for money. Um, so if you go to akirsten.info, they can find info about what I can help you with to get your project started with and see some demos of the stuff I've produced at different levels. Um, and then as an actor, um, uh, you can, I tend to put stuff on Instagram at, um, at Amy C. Kirsten. I do like mini Instagram videos. Um, and then if you search Hot Mess web series, you can find Hot Mess. And you know it's us because there's a lot of things called Hot Mess, but our logo is a crumpled yellow post-it note that says hot mess like in Sharpie. So that's how you know it's us and not like an Australian porn site. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and so those mm. are the main things. And I feel like I've got, you know, I have a web series that we just produced with Hillary Edson that's uh, uh, who's an uh, Emmy nominee. She was on Soaps. She was on As the World Turns. I think As the World Turns. Sorry, Hills. Um, uh, anyway, and so and she had a lot of friends in the soap world. So we did a show called Tudor Pimp. It's about an Upper East Side uh, divorcee who's trying to pay the bills by like pimping out two unlikely women as Ivy League tutors because the cost of an Ivy League tutor and the cost of a high-end hooker are the same per hour in New York City, ladies and gentlemen. So if you go to tutorpimp.show and check out Tudor Pimp. Um, and then if you want to see in case of emergency, just, I don't know, message me on Instagram and I'll send you the link. It's, I don't know. It's a bunch awesome. of things. Well, thank you so much for talking. Yes, oh, thank you. What for a treat, you guys! I love this podcast. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I'm glad we to bring up too. the scrappy end of production, so you guys no. can, you know. It's, yeah, you got to start somewhere, and that's the biggest thing. Is I think people get overwhelmed and they want it to be like the grandeur, the vision mm-hmm. of grandeur, and they yeah. like want it to be a TV show right away. And it's like, even if you look at like Liam Dunham and yeah. all these people, they made shorts. They made. They yeah. Made, indie projects before yeah and honestly like go check out if you search my name and then the phrase coattails on on youtube you can find coattails and then go check out hot mess and let me tell you guys my agents in new york were far bigger fans of coattails (laughs) take that and put it in your pipe and smoke it when you see them both you will you'll get it awesome awesome well thank you so much thank you yeah thanks thanks for for listening. listening bye